0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.
1: First of all, I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm Colleen I'm director of the Matthew J. Ryan Center for the Study of Free Institutions and the Public Good, mouthful, but the study of free institutions, here at Villanova University. Uh, we have student organizations at the Ryan Center if you don't know about us. Um, we are the Ryan Undergraduate Fellows, as well as the Ryan Graduate Fellows, and the Ryan Law Fellows. If anyone is interested in knowing more about the center or becoming a part of any of this, please contact me or Brenda Pastera. Um, or there are a number of folks here who um, um, are part of Part of these groups that you could talk to as well. We have reading groups, we have um, a few scholarships, we're working on more. We do lectures like this, conferences, we support um, uh, two postdocs, and we, in general, try to keep the intellectual life of Villanova um, diverse. <laughs> uh, We also support um, the Pursuit of Excellence Learning Community, which is part of the Villanova Center for Liberal Education, um, to the extent that that we can. Uh, The Intercollegiate Studies Institute, or ISI, um, also has been gracious to co-sponsor this event with us today. And um, if anybody's interested, they have some sign-up cards. They're a very active organization nationally supporting students across the nation. Um, and they're going to do a raffle following the lecture um, for some of the books that they publish in case you are interested and want to take advantage of that. So thank you, ISI, very much. I have the great privilege today to introduce to you our speaker this afternoon, Father James Shaw. I've been a fan of Father Shaw for a very long time. And I'm so happy that we could persuade him to come to Villanova today to visit with us and to share with us some of the things he thinks about. Father Shaw is a professor in the Department of Government at Georgetown University. He earned his PhD in political philosophy from Georgetown, uh, along with a couple of master's degrees, one in philosophy from Gonzaga University and the other in uh, sacred theology from Santa Clara University. He was also ordained a Roman Catholic priest, uh, despite the order. He was also ordained in that Georgetown order uh, that the Augustinians here at Villanova just uh, asked a question about here and their Father. Uh, he was ordained a Roman Catholic priest in 1963 and is a member of the California province of the Society of Jesus. So in other words, he's a Jesuit. <laughs> His interests include classical and medieval political philosophy, natural law, Christian political philosophy, and the nature of political philosophy generally. He has published what I would call extensively. He's published over 30 books and innumerable essays and reviews. Some of his work includes Reason, Revelation, and the Foundations of Political Philosophy, another book entitled Another Sort of Learning, At the Limits of Political Philosophy, a book on Hrach Maritain, and a book on the philosopher in society. He also writes a column called Sense and Nonsense, sounds very Austenian, Jane Austenian, mm-hmm. uh, in Crisis Magazine, and he writes a column called Shawl on Chesterton in Gilbert. Father Shaw is also a beloved teacher. Uh, and there are many, many generations of students who still speak of him um, in tones of deference and love as the best teacher they've ever had the privilege to have. I was recently giving a talk at um, Georgetown and Patrick Deneen, who's head of the Tocco Society there, we were talking afterwards, and It was really hard to get this uh, topo forum going, it's much like the Ryan Center here. And he has a really wonderful uh, group of students who are dedicated to this. But unfortunately, he didn't get a lot of faculty or institutional support. And uh, Professor Janine is going to be leaving Georgetown soon and going to that other Catholic university, Notre Dame. But he said to me, you know, "As, as much and as hard as I've worked on this, and I think we've done some good things with the students. He said, really, when you think about it in comparison, what I can do with the students in a year with all my hard work, Father Shaw does every day of his life and more. So please join me today in welcoming Father James Shaw.
0: I had never met Professor Sheen before and, um, but I must say her charm went, went ahead of her and so I knew all about her and uh, it's very delightful that you introduced me and thank you. And it is very nice to be here at Villanova. I have been here I, I think once or twice before and uh, I root against you all the time uh, <laughs> and uh, with justification. And, um, but it's, a, it's a, a, a kind of a shame that uh, none of our schools are uh, in the finals this week, and so we can all be disappointed by that. I'd like to acknowledge uh, Professor John Schrems here, uh, who's an old friend of mine, uh, emeritus professor of the uh, political science department here. And I also like, I don't know Tom Smith is here, Professor Tom Smith, uh, who was a student of mine uh, years and years ago back at uh, Georgetown. I don't know whether Catherine Wilson is not here or not, but anyway, she's another former student of mine, not a student, but a friend of mine, and so uh, I'm very pleased to be here. Now I titled this essay uh, um, on living to some purpose, and I got a subtitle which is called How to Get an Education While You're Still in College. Now, there's a subtle meaning to that, so I want you to pay attention to that. Now, I'm gonna start with three quotations, as I normally do, and I want you to listen to these quotations. They're very, very, very um, interesting. And the first one is this. <clears throat> Can I be heard okay? Can I be heard okay? Yes. Nobody's shaking their heads out. okay the one is says, he says, I am not sorry to have lived since the course of my life has taken, uh, has ta- uh, as life has taken has encouraged me to believe that I have lived to some purpose. So that's the title. But what nature has given us is a place to dwell in temporarily, not one to make our own. When I leave it, therefore, I shall feel as if I am leaving a hostel rather than a home. Now that is, as I will mention, is from Cicero. Uh, the next quotation is this, so listen to this. Cicero, it's is from his essay, famous essay on old age. Very appropriate for some of us. The point is not that this world is so sad to love or so glad Uh, not to love. The point is that when you love something, when you love a thing, its, its gladness is a reason for loving it and its sadness is a reason for loving it more. And that, of course, is from Chesterton's Orthodoxy. And the final quotation. Then when someone... Uh, someone's desires flow towards learning and everything of that sort, he'd be concerned, I suppose, with the pleasure of the soul itself by itself. And he'd abandon those pleasures that come through the body if indeed he is a true philosopher and not merely a counterfeit one. That, of course, is from the sixth book of the Republic of uh, Plato. So it seems only fitting to uh, begin a lecture at the Augustinian founded Villanova University, citing not just Cicero and Chesterton and Socrates, but also St. Augustine. In his treatise on Christian doctrine, Augustine, of whom it is said that no one could read everything he wrote, entitles chapter 5, chapter 4, wisdom has more importance than eloquence to the Christian teacher. Wisdom has more importance than eloquence to the Christian teacher. If If someone fails to understand the ambiguous charm that eloquence can have on our souls, he will not grasp the import of Augustine's priority of wisdom to eloquence. And two, we want to know precisely what is a Christian teacher. Is he a Christian who teaches anything at all, whatever it is? Is he a teacher who establishes only what Christian doctrine is about? Is he one who understands that nothing is understood unless his mind is open uh, both to reason and to revelation, even uh, then with the realization that we are not gods, but finite human beings. We have knowledge, but not divine knowledge, unless the divinity itself decides to inform us of what more there is than what we can know by our own uh, finite powers. Now, in this discussion, Augustine writes, now, now a man speaks with more or less wisdom just as he made more or less progress in the knowledge of scripture. I do not mean by reading them much and committing them to memory, but by understanding them aright and carefully searching their meaning for there are those who read and yet neglect them. They read to remember the words, but are careless about the knowledge and their meaning." End of the quote. We are not to read simply to remember the words, but to know something, to know what it means. And yet, we do not, disdain the fascinating endeavor to learn rhetoric or oratory, to learn how to understand and speak words well. Words mean to us the intelligibility of what they signify. They enable us to be where we are not. Amazing, really, when you think about it. Uh, To awaken ourselves to things that are that are absent in time and place, and yet things still alive in our minds and our memories and in our souls. Now, the title of this lecture, as I mentioned, is from Cicero's famous essay on old age, the Senec I have always insisted that young students in my classes read with me as I read it again each semester. Now, I don't have the same students in my class every semester, but the same me is there every semester, so I get to read about old age every semester during my whole life. Uh, it's a great experience, actually. Uh, to be free to read something again, and now listen to these words. To listen, to be, uh, uh, to be free to read something again and again, is one of the intellectual experiences that we all should have many things certainly most great things we will not be free to un- that word we will not be free to understand until we read again and again the passages that contain what they have to tell us when students have finished reading old age i tell them Now give this essay to, or better read it, to your grandfather or your grandmother. How often it is in our experience that when we read something, something great, something uh, amusing, we look for someone to whom to tell it. Do you ever think about why you do that? We do it, I do it, you do it. We look for someone uh, to whom to tell it. It is not complete it is not complete if it is only ours Now this memorable essay of Cicero I explain binds generations together in an almost tangible way Cicero is not a Christian but what he says is fully human He is indeed one of the founders of classical humanism. It is said that once liberal education meant nothing less than simply reading Cicero. What we call liberal education today is rarely superior to the reading of Cicero, something we find almost incomprehensible if we identify what is best with what is recent. Don't ever do that. Cicero wrote on old age in 44 BC, the year before he died, and actually was murdered under the orders of Anthony. Cicero was 63 years old when he died, and looking back on his life through the eyes of Cato the Elder in this dialogue, he tells us that he is not sorry to have lived itself a wonderful, almost defiant statement. Moreover, Cicero thinks that his life was of some purpose. His life was of some purpose. We might say that this very fact that Cicero recorded this affirmation uh, the year before he died incites us to wonder about the same thing for ourselves. Is our life to some purpose? The fact that we are alive suggests that it does. That our ultimate origins lie in some cause that brought the world into being out of nothingness in the first place. And yet, in the order of intention, God's intention, human beings come before the cosmos itself, which was created for their purposes and not for its own purpose. As I like to put it, we look at the cosmos to understand it. It does not look at us to find out what it is about. In the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, Koheath tells us, following the same line of thought about our purpose, that quote, "I have considered the task which God has appointed for men to uh, uh, be busy about. He has made everything appropriate to its time, and has put the timeless into." Uh, into their hearts without men's ever discovering from the beginning to the end the work which God has done. He has put the timeless into your hearts. Isn't that a great statement? That we have the timeless in our hearts without our ever suspecting or discovering God's work is almost the definition of what we are. Here we have Augustine's restless hearts that will not allow us to settle for anything less than for that for which we are created. I'm sure you've all read the confessions. It would be a sin uh, for a, a sin, a mortal sin, for graduates of, of, of uh, Villanova not to have read the confessions. We are. I'm doing a class in Augustine this semester, and we just finished the Confessions. Actually, we live, no doubt, in a relativist, unbelieving age, as you probably have noticed. Unlike the wicked and adulterous generations of which Christ spoke, our generations, uh, the generations, uh, that generation that demanded a sign, we expect no sign. Uh, of anything much beyond ourselves. The sign of transcendence are literally removed from our thinking and our seeing. Rarely will we find a student who knows the first thing about classical or medieval tradition or about the content of scripture. You'd be amazed at how many times I've asked students over the... I have a large class over the years about like who was a good Samaritan or name the four evangelists. Nothing. You get no, nothing. Amazing. That doesn't happen here, right? Good, okay. All right. As a Jesuit friend of mine, John Navoni once put it, no tradition, no civilization. Tradition is a topic about which the great Joseph Pieper, now if you don't know the word Joseph Pieper, you know it now, and so you'd be sure and get a small library of the works of Joseph Pieper. In any case, I can give you a speech on that if you want. All right. um, but anyway, the, the, uh, Pieper, oh. <laughs> did somebody, did I say something? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be more careful about what I say from now on. Right? <laughs> but anyway, uh, Peter wrote a book called uh, Tradition, Concepts, and uh, Claim, which is a wonderful book, and he said, uh, He said, um, uh, tradition means rather uh, not just to hand down something, but rather to deliver something that has been previously uh, arrived in your hands, uh, which uh, was consigned to you to share something that was handed over and uh, handed down, to hand on something that you received so that it can be received and handed on again. So that, in a certain sense, the scripture is what is handed on and is not, shawl is not supposed to add anything to it. Uh, it is supposed to be handed on as it was in the beginning. Now, our theological tradition, uh, the account within, uh, uh, within it of what we are and what we are intended to be is of this nature. Ultimately, what we are has been handed down to us in Revelation, what we really are, what we ultimately are. Its essence is not something we concoct for ourselves, but something we have received to be handed on as we received it. Something that of its very nature is better than what we can imagine for ourselves. Very powerful thought. A life of purpose, then, is a life of responsibility. A life in which truth and good make a difference. Make a difference to the meaning of life itself. When we understand that, when we understand that he is to become um, what he already is, when man is, becomes what he already is, the rational being has to take account of himself. To tell a human person, Be what you are implies that he has a direct charge over what he becomes. This alone is why we can praise him or blame him for what he makes of himself. No one can simply be what he is to become. You have to to change. He does not begin to Uh, his individual life as a fixed, complete reality without, as Aristotle says, his own uh, rule of himself. It is not our project to make ourselves to be human beings as we already, uh, as Aristotle already taught us. Man does not make himself to be man, but taking himself from nature to be already man makes himself to be good man, he says. Uh, uh, Though we can fail to be what we ought to be, we are to make ourselves to be good, worthy human beings, as if that project is already found within us, which it is. It is something to be freely accomplished or rejected. The timeless is indeed already in our hearts to recall Kohalas. But we are free to ignore what we are. We are free to ignore what we are. We have to power. We have the power to reject what we are and in so doing reject what caused us to be what we are. The great, great, great power without this capacity to reject what we are, not even God could be much interested in us. So if we're automatons, we're not particularly interesting. Since God is love, he cannot make a creature uh, in which the freedom to love is not what operates at its highest point, the point of contact between God and man. Alan Bloom began his famous book, The Closing of the American Mind, that somebody told me was published now 25 years ago this year. He began his book by saying, no professor walks into a classroom without assuming, I hope you're listening to this now, without assuming that each student out there is either a relativist or thinks he is one. Now I would hope that this observation is not entirely true, but I know that it is largely is, though with little intellectual justification. We like to say, as if it were a reason, that it is just the culture that makes us this way, on which it is, but culture only lives in hearts that allow it to enter and to flourish there. Many think, indeed, uh, indeed it is almost taken for granted that by denying any purpose in things, including especially human things, in denying what used to be called final causes or first things, we could be free of the gods free even of any norms in nature. Supposedly then we can do whatever we want uh, with no suspicious shadow of judgment hovering over our thoughts and our deeds. Nothing is out there to violate, which if true, considerably reduces our sense of drama and importance. So if there's nothing really that makes any difference to what you do, what, what, what drama is there in our lives? There are, it is said, no natural laws to be broken. Yet, the liberty to do whatever we want, when activated, that very what we want becomes on that score alone meaningless. I can do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. We do. What difference does it make? Um, one on this hypothesis, the opposite of whatever we do would be just as meaningless or meaningful as what we do do. So, so, so the the point is subtle. If in principle everyone creates his own world, then no one except accidentally is related to anybody uh, or anything else uh, in any binding or significant manner. The world becomes filled with myriads uh, of unconnected things. Now we thus live philosophically meaningless lives because of that way we th- uh, because of the way we think independently of what is we find ourselves increasingly lonely. Nothing is worth talking about to anyone because nothing means anything. We ironically find ourselves in the same loneliness that was said to characterize Aristotle's God. Only now it is applied to us and not to the God. The loneliness of Aristotle's God, by the way, is one of the most important insights into Christian revelation of the Trinity, but I won't go into that here. We have nothing in common with anyone except the suspicion that nothing matters because nothing means nothing, including meaning nothing. Our, our own meanings put on things. Are simply our own meanings. They are imposed on a reality that has no order or resistance of its own. So, if if there's no, uh, you know, if there's no order in the universe which we can discover, which is sort of what is the presupposition of a good deal of the science, uh, then, then what do you discover when you discover something? You discover your own mind which is not very interesting if there's nothing else in there, all right, and everyone is in, everyone's imposed order is different. No one lives the same, same, in the same world. This is the direction in which the logic of mindless freedom leads us. Now, in an old Peanuts cartoon, Lucy and her brother Linus are sitting uh, on a sofa watching television, and Lucy looks straight ahead with an unusually confused look on her face, and she asks Linus a very philosophical question. Do you think people ever change? And Linus was very pleased to be asked such a profound question by a sister that's always after him, uh, ponders the issue. Sure, he finally says, I feel I've changed a lot in this past year. To which Lucy, bringing out a real character, quickly deflates his response by adding, I mean change for the better. (laughs) It is not precise just to ask whether we can change. Actually, most of Aristotle's ethics are contained in this amusing scene in which Lucy acknowledges that Linus has changed but doubts if he has changed for the better. We have first a denial of Parmenides' position that being is one and therefore nothing changes and we recognize that things can and do change, but not just haphazardly. We also see that they can change in two directions, for better or for worse. In which direction they change is the whole point of morality in the first place, the whole point of drama, really. And if we are going to change, it should be for the better. And therefore, we need to have some notion of what we mean by better and worse. Uh, Otherwise, the words would be meaningless. Praise and blame, so Aristotle says praise and blame are the basic uh, reactions we get to our actions in the ethics. Praise and blame, the touchstone of the ethics, would have no ground for distinction uh, if a change could not be for better or for worse. So at the heart of Peanuts, as well as at the heart of, uh, as well as in Aristotle and in the account of the fall in Genesis, we have free will, deliberation and decision about what we do. The Peanuts scene is only funny, moreover, if we realize Linus's innocence about the direction of change. His sister's sophisticated, if not sophistic, insight, doubts that Linus is going to get any better uh, this past year, though contrary to her judgment, he obviously assumes he can. Now the subtitle of this presentation to you today is briefly how to get an education even while you're still in college, even while you're still at Villanova. It implies that hundreds of thousands of highly degreed people are nonetheless mostly uneducated in the highest things even if they are degreed from the best and most expensive institutions of higher learning. It is quite possible to attend what I call the resume university or the highest tuition college to acquire there uh, a straight A GPA uh, on all of the 128 credits uh, that guarantee a student a liberal education. And yet, most still come away with an empty soul to become, as C.S. Lewis called them, men without chests. When I think of these things, I often recall the remark that the philosopher Eric Vogelin made in 1976 to a group of students in Montreal. He told them that, quote, no man has to participate in the errors of his time, no man has to participate in the errors of his time. In these days of growing ideological democracy, it is becoming more difficult than ever, uh, uh, even uh, Vogelin seems to have than even Vogel seems to have imagined. But to follow his admonition we have to be able to avoid them, the errors, to know that errors are errors. This knowledge is not something we can know if we are relativists of whatever variety. In a sense, if we are relativists, we must participate in the errors of our time because we do not know what they are, that they are errors or that there is a meaningful difference between our view and the view of another. By tolerating everything, we stand for everything and nothing. So where do we go? Uh, To answer this question, I have always proposed a list of books or essays. Uh, This is initially a contemplative exercise. What I mean by a contemplative exercise is that we just want to know. We don't want to do anything about it necessarily, we don't know. So you have a mind, and that mind has its own activity, and that activity is the highest activity we have in some sense. And what does it do when it does, it just knows, just knows. I have always then thought that uh, this list of books, of essays, and this is initially a contemplative exercise, and we have to know of and read books that no one else will tell us about. The first thing we want to know is simple. How are things? As Yves Simon put it in his uh, great and seminal book, A General Theory of Authority. If you've never heard of that book a general theory of authority, get it and read it, okay? at the command, okay? Uh, We frequently see the questions proposed. Why is there something rather than nothing? Or why is this thing not nothing? Or what is the purpose of my existence? Uh, Vogelin asked these questions, as did Vatican II and as does Benedict XVI. The Catholic mind, as I like to call it, has been unique not only because it is open to all sources, but because it sees that intelligence and faith relate to each other, seek each other. This is why it is under such pressure today to deny itself so that it can accommodate itself to what is becoming the public order. Catholics, uh, though this has been coming on for some time, have in recent months become aware that their very existence as an organized society in the public world, uh, the principles upon which it, it, it was based, are being denied by the culture and by the government itself. It is what I call a legal persecution that we do not yet know to what extent it will be pursued. The first steps are already taken. It has already proceeded faster and more thoroughly than anyone might have imagined five years ago. And its logical consequences set the relativist culture and political system that puts it into law and decrees directly against things Catholic and things rational. Now, each year, when I read, uh, with a class, Herbert Dean's book, The Political and Social Ideas of St. Augustine, I always leave reading that book with this passage ringing in my ears. Dean writes that, in Augustine's view, as history, quote, as history draws to a close, The number of true Christians in the world will decline rather than increase. His words give no support to the hope that the world will gradually be brought to belief in Christ and that earthly society can be transformed step by step into the kingdom of God. The end of the quote. Powerful. We know this is already true for Europe in many ways. And in many ways for America also. People like Philip Jenkins and even the papacy look with hope to Africa and to Asia uh, to counter this dramatic loss, loss of population, loss of of, um, practice of the faith. Needless to say, the modern understanding of what is our purpose in the world, to spell it out, is precisely that we can, by our own efforts, establish this kingdom of God on earth. That's what it intends to do. If you've never read the Benedict's encyclical salvi, then we are to be saved in faith. It is an absolutely great encyclical, perhaps its greatest. And it is precisely on this point, precisely on this point, this has been the driving force of modernity since its inception in the 16th century. I have a new book on that subject, so I'm, I'm thinking about. It. Okay. So, how does someone manage to acquire an education while still in college? Monsignor Sokolowski at Catholic U, Monsignor Sokolowski is a a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. So if you have never read Sokolowski, do so. He once remarked to me, and I think it is true, that all a student needs is one or two good professors or even good classmates. That is very often sufficient. This advice has to be read, however, in the light of Y. Simone's admonition that there is, quote, nothing to prevent a young philosopher from giving his soul to an unworthy professor. I'll read that again. There is nothing to prevent a young philosopher from giving his soul to an unworthy professor. Plato's dialogues, on the other hand, are filled with bright and intelligent young men whose souls seek nothing but power and glory and not truth and wisdom. It's amazing when you read Plato in that sense. There is but one, there is but the other side, or th- that is but the other side of the advice uh, given, of the advice that it, Augustine uh, gave us about oratory and wisdom, not words but what they mean. I think in addition to this advice about worthy and unworthy professors, we should reflect a bit on what Aristotle advised us uh, about why it is we cannot or do not understand the first principles of reason. These are in themselves self-evident, though it is amazing how frequently otherwise intelligent persons can be talked out of them. Aristotle also told us that if we have a good upbringing, we will, uh, he means a, a good family life, a good moral life, he said, we will grasp such principles when we are old enough to understand them. By this advice, he implied that living an irregular or immoral life when one is young so we remember Augustine when he is young, will inevitably prevent the young student from seeing the truth of things, which he is old, when he is old enough to grasp the principles on which they are grounded. In this sense, morals come before truths. If we do not live rightly, we will not usually think rightly, at least about the important things, because we will be using our minds primarily to justify what we are doing. Now, such considerations are why Aristotle understood politics to deal primarily with virtue and vice. He thought metaphysics followed politics in this sense that one needed to have his soul in order to admit that the truth was the truth. Otherwise, he would spend, as I said, his time not with the truth itself, but with arguments that allow him to do what he wants or wills to do. The reading of Augustine remains reminds us again and again how this use of specious philosophy to allow us to do what we want to do, how it works. Augustine recognized it at work in himself, something we all need to do if we are, uh, if we are uh, our own problems as we usually are. In number 73 of the Rambler, uh, which was the journal, Um, for February the 5th, 1751. Samuel Johnson brought up the topic of books, of the books that young students read that filled their minds with characters and opinions that they would later be required to abandon when they came uh, later to more complete knowledge of things. In the end, Johnson thought that it is more natural for a man of learning and genius to apply himself to writers who have more beauties than faults. The day of a, of, of a critic, Johnson concluded, is or the duty of a critic is to hold out the light of reason. Whatever, whatever it may discover, and so promulgate the determination of truth wherever she shall dictate, the end of the quote. Thomas Aquinas could not have said it better. As Aristotle said, "It is useful for us to understand the argument against the physician, of, uh, of a uh, physician as more complete as a more complete way to know the good sense of a truth. In other words, unless you understand the arguments against the thing, you will not really understand the thing itself. And that is itself a kind of a contemplative activity to understand what is good, what is evil, what is right. In conclusion, in the spirit of these reflections, I should like to uh, recommend to you five books and four essays for your education while still in college. Um, they are not classics in the sense of the Confessions of Augustine or the Gorges of Plato or St. Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. They may or may not have come across your readings. If so, if you read them, great. The four essays are these. Now, these, usually you usually can find these online. I got a number of others that I wish I would have put in there, but I'll, I'll pass them now. The first one is Benedict's essay called The Regensburg Lecture. Absolutely brilliant lecture. We have the Pope, who is the greatest mind in the world today as a Pope. Amazing. The second essay is C.S. Lewis's. Uh, Second is C.S. Lewis's essay called The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. The third is Belloc, Hilary Belloc's book called Jane Austen, an absolutely beautiful essay. And the last book is that of, uh, the last essay is that of Dorothy Sayers, which is called The Lost Tools of Learning. Now, I'm almost sure you can get almost all of these just by going to Google and typing them in. I know you can most of them. The five books are these. The first one is E.F. Schumacher's book called A Guide for the Perplexed. An absolutely amazing book. Not very long, 100 100 maybe 25 pages. I know there's no book quite like that. The second book is Sokolowski, Monsignor Sokolowski's book called A God of Faith and Reason another book which is about 110 pages. The third book, obviously, is Chesterton's Orthodoxy, and I I, I still think Orthodoxy is the greatest book written since he wrote it. Puts more things together than anything you will ever read. The fourth book is uh, an anthology. It's called Joseph Pieper Dash, An Anthology. It's a wonderful book. And the fifth book is, uh, the Dominican A.D. Serti book uh, called The Intellectual Life. This book, The Intellectual Life, of the book, was written about 1920. And it's about how to continue thinking the rest of your life, even if you got a job, you got a family, you got responsibility. It's what you have to do, how you have to discipline yourself. It's a great book, famous book. And to these, I would add one of my own books, the one which is called on the unseriousness of human affairs. These are, I think, soul-changing books and essays. I have others, but let these stand for now. Together they illustrate the two fundamental principles of the liberally educated and Catholic mind. First, that faith is addressed to reason and reason is addressed to faith. When we understand these things, we have begun our education. And secondly, we have a lifetime and more in which to complete it. And we do think it will be completed, but not fully in this life. In the end, if all an end, it all is indeed to some purpose. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. you have question. Yes? have questions? Do we
1: have time for questions? Sure. Questions?
0: Usually you have to. Uh, let me, let me. Questions. Let me no, no, no. Some no. of
1: you students have questions and you might be just feeling a little reserved,
0: but um, we'll wait. Well, let me, let me, let me. Oh, over here, Father. All right. I had a couple myself. You have a couple <laughs> questions. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned the book Orthodoxy, um, and, and you said it was the greatest. You said it was the
1: greatest book considered to be written. Um written. I definitely believe that. Uh, would you would you mind talking about about Chesterton or, or, or why why you picked this particular book or? Uh, do that again. Sorry. Um, you mentioned the book Orthodoxy. Um, would you mind talking about why the, that particular book had oh. to with
0: the others or? Have you read it?
1: Uh, yes, I love it.
0: Yeah. Um, um, that book was written in 1908. Okay, so its hundredth anniversary was a couple of years ago. And, um, and that particular book um, is uh, a preview and a, and a retrospective of the nature of uh, what the human mind is. It's, it's a brilliantly witty and, and shall I say, you know, a paradoxical book in a way. Um, and that there is no, as far as I can see, there is no major issue that has come up since then which is not covered in that book. So it's a very prophetic kind of a book. And uh, uh, Orthodoxy, as all of Chesterton. Like I have written, I have a book called *Shawl and Chesterton, which is a bunch of essays that I've done. I've written an essay on Chesterton every month for probably 30 years, 30 years. And I am nowhere near the end of uh, what he said. and there, and he's a kind of man that in, in one short paragraph or even a sentence uh, opens up a whole world to you. It's amazing. And, 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 and not only that, but he's delightful. So Chesterton was once accused of the following sin. Uh, that, he, that some ladies told him once that he, nobody could believe what he said. Uh, that what he said was true because he was so funny. And he said, Madam, he said, "Uh, um, uh, whether or not I am funny or not, you can tell the truth. Uh, He said the opposite of funny is not falsity, but it's not funny, okay? He said you can tell the truth with humor and amusement, or you can tell it with dullness. And he said it's much better to tell it with humor, uh, and and which is what he does, and uh, and yet he's very 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 disarming, and uh, so w- with regard to Chesterton, I would say uh, this that that he is um, he's one of those one of those writers who grip your soul, you know. You, once you get to now, there are a lot of people who don't like his par- I would say a lot of people. But some people don't like his paradox. You have to get to read him. But if you do, you will find that you are being educated at the very basic things. And remember that Chesterton, uh, uh, when he writes that book, he says, uh, these people ask him why he became a Christian. And he says, well, he said, I, I, he grew up an atheist and I grew up in England, I wasn't anything. And he said, he said, I've read all of the arguments against the faith, and, and, uh, but never anything that anybody who is a Christian said. He said what converted me was reading the illogicality of the arguments against Christianity. And he said he couldn't figure out why these arguments were all so illogical. And he said finally realized that they were so illogical it was because they were using any kind of thing they wanted to against the truth, he said. Which is what happened if you logically carry it out. So, so there's a certain drama to this thing of saying that. I, I, I want let me, let me say another word, can I do it? Um, uh, in, uh, in one of my books, another sort of learning, there's a chapter on sports, so I feel like need I need to say that here at, at, at Holy at, at Villanova, uh, and um, and the thesis is this. I think you want, I think this is an interesting thesis. Aristotle, for example, will say that uh, or let's put it this. Way, I put it this way. Sports are the closest the average young man, I don't know about young ladies, I don't speak for them, but young men at least, come to contemplation in the Aristotelian sense. Now what does he mean by that? Uh, He says that, so Aristotle is talking about um, the things that are of ultimate importance that are great for their own sake. And he said that when you go to a good play, or to, so Alan Bloom has another book in which he says something like this, Um, He says, if you go to a a, a Greek play, for example, or a Shakespearean play, he said, and you are there and you behold what's going on so that you stop being yourself and you become, you behold, he says, what you are uh, better in a play than brushing your teeth in the morning because, because the play carries out, the drama of what it is to be a human being. And the same with sports in a way. Aristotle says sports are not as serious as the, as the drama, but he says, they give you an experience of, of, of something that is worthy for its own sake. Its own sake, so you're outside of yourself. You're, you, you're not thinking about, you You think about the unfolding event that's going before. of course. There's a, there's a capacity of the human intellect to, uh, to be outside of itself, to be engrossed in this thing that's going on, and therefore, in a certain sense, to be forgetful of yourself and to be following this kind of thing so that, that, the, that the contemplation that, that uh, very often we get from, from good games and the drama of good games is precisely the analogy to what you mean by contemplation, seeing things for their own sake because they are beautiful or good. Great experience. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're talking about like, the decline um, of the
1: classics. Um, is this a trend that you think will continue? And if so, how would that affect this course of um, like, the education? I the trend of what? Uh, the decline of, I guess, the importance of the classics. And, oh, I see. Well, decline it's
0: already declined. Okay. Yeah, I have to say, do you think it's a trend uh. that will continue? Well. First of all, there's been many efforts to recall, restore it. Um. So, there's a, there's a, long, there's, I have a colleague at, at Georgetown, a lady that I know, and she said one time, she's talking about, she's, she's all concerned about the fact about whether or not the physical plant of a university is any longer valid. Um, why bring all these people together in this given place, and why not just leave them home and put them online, and, and 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 do it that way and do it online kind of thing and uh so there's a there's a certain way you have to think about this because this is the way it's going to go financially anyway and already going in that sense and uh and there are some really i was talking to uh, professor schrenzer there are some really very good online universities and online programs and it's interesting about the church that 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 uh, you all probably know who father fezio is but father fezio is the uh, uh, director of the Ignatius uh, Press, which has really been a uh, press which has kept the Catholic mind going in the last 50 years. Well, he now has his own little private university online. And he, he can give you a university education for I forget what the cost is, $25,000 or something like that. Uh, and give you all the program, all the tests, all this kind of thing online. And it's interactive, you know. Now, I'm not a big fan of this thing, but I've, I have to report it because this is the way it's going. As your question. And uh, so another man that I know, uh, a man named Peter Redpath, who has, a, uh, who has an, uh, an online university, which I think is called the Academy. And uh, Peter Redpath, is, he says, it's my intention to get rid of high schools. Uh, and he says, we can do that uh, by these uh, uh, online education and classics. And there are many kind of uh, smaller programs which are just beginning, uh, which, are, which are bypassing the whole... The whole system so in a way there's a sort of revival of of, of uh, classical interest in a way if you know where know where to look for it yeah. but on the other hand in in the schools themselves uh no that's not you're not going to find it there and that's why i say that you have to you have to be lucky and find a professor or a, a colleague or somebody who, who tells you to read right thing because in a certain sense ultimately it's up to you you know what you read where you go and so forth so that that you know you can have the greatest professor in the world. I, I always have to, um, uh, Professor uh, Schrems and I had a, a famous uh, uh, priest who was a professor Catholic U when we were, when we were shall we say, considerably younger. And, um, and uh, we were laughing at it just now that uh, he wanted to know what kind of a, you know, the stu- do you have student evaluations here? Yeah, we do. Do you? We do. Uh, uh, you give her A plus there, right, all this time. Machine, of course. Oh, of course. Not. <laughs> but anyway, he said he wondered what uh, Professor Father uh, McCoy would have gotten. Well, he probably, McCoy, McCoy probably wouldn't have gotten a D minus in the thing. You know, I already measured these things. Uh, because he was the guy that went to class and he kind of talked like this. God, I, you know, I used to get in the front row because I, I, I can not hear much now, but I couldn't hear anything then. And, <laughs> and so I used to get in the front row to hear him. And yet, it was the most brilliant class I'd ever had. You know, it's so all of a sudden. All of a sudden, he 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 kind of woke you up, and so so I have a kind of a thing which I call um, the light in the eye theory, and um, it's, this is my theory. It's practice. I learned this from experience. So you're teaching. I say we read Aristotle, or we read Cicero, or we read something of Saint Augustine, or we read uh, Saint Thomas. So you got this class of 100 kids out there. And these guys are sitting in the back row. You know, and, uh, and, uh, and so I never let students be themselves. I mean, I'm always after them. But it's interesting, like, after, you know, after a while, I get to know them pretty well. And, you know, after, say, 10 classes or 11 classes, 12, you, know, you see this kid sitting over here in the back row. And he's been sort of like this the whole thing. And all of a sudden, and so I'm trying to make him read this stuff, you know. So apparently they've been reading it. And I'm trying to say to them, look, what's important is the book. Not what Shaw says, not what anybody else says, what's what you read in the book is what's important. And all of a sudden you see this kid over there and he'd be looking at you. And all of a sudden he means he woke up. He realized there was something going on in that book that he didn't realize before, you know. And and very often books, you know, as I say, you have to read them again and again. I bet I have read the Books like the Ethics of Aristotle, Cicero, and this kind of things, hundreds of times. They are always a new book. It's amazing. It's amazing. You think, you come across a sentence you say, "I never saw that before," you know, and you've read it a hundred times, and so and so. That's what a great book means. Now there there are books that are not great books, and there are books that are useful books, and all that kind of thing. And there are also what I call these minor classics, which I try to. Which I try to go that books nobody else tell you about. everybody tells you about Plato and Earth, all this kind of thing but but you got to remember that the great books the great books contradict each other so if you if you spend your time with the great books and you don't have a philosophical background or program, you will be a skeptic because because they contradict each other and if you've got any kind of logical head in your family, you 'd see that okay so that the, so that the great books need to be need to be within a context of some kind of philosophical understanding by which you can judge them. You know? And so, so that they're not just, you know, Plato has, so what happened in the United States, actually, with great books theory, I don't know, Jack, you can correct me on this, but what happened with great books theory was that great books theory replaced the study of philosophy itself, with, as Strauss the study of political philosophy, and it replaced it with the history of this thing. Well, if you start studying the history of something, and that's all you study, you will be so confused you don't know where you are, okay? You've got to have some criterion of judgment and intelligence which is not simply a repetition of what somebody said. You've got to think your way through it and say, well, wait a minute, how does this fit together? You know? Anyway.
1: So, Father, um, if there were a university that created a rule that said... Um if one class is reading the Nicomachean Ethics, no other classes should do so. Would you think that was maybe not the best way to? you think we should do that
0: again? <laughs> <laughs> I would say that's crazy. That, that, that. Oh. OK. <laughs> but what was you saying?
1: That if one class was teaching the Nicomachean Ethics, yeah. another class shouldn't because, of
0: course, you wouldn't want to read that book twice. Oh, I see <laughs> what you mean.
1: Would you agree or disagree with that? Uh, or
0: would you
1: think it was crazy? Well,
0: the way I look at our place is I'm delighted. Uh, you know, we got 6,000 students, so I'm delighted. If I'm only teaching 100 of them, I, I, I'd be delighted somebody else is teaching another 100 of them if, he, you know, if it's any good. So I don't see any competition okay. there. What I, what I do see, though, and what your point is, is that, uh, you know, in the meantime, the two professors get and argue about each other about what, what, uh, what Aristotle says, and then you, you get that kind of a thing. No, I
1: just mean in a core
0: curriculum. Well, all I say, if you've got a core curriculum, it is a good thing to read Aristotle more than once. Okay. But secondly, uh, that in a core curriculum, it's not one of the books you want to read. Uh, or if, I t- if you had a core curriculum, you didn't have Aristotle in it, I would say there must be something wrong with your core curriculum. <laughs> okay. You know what? Yes, yeah. Father, Father, today you've outlined a quest for truth. And I was just wondering if you could make a comment on where that quest ends. Uh, well, that's kind of what the whole paper was about, wasn't it? Um, uh, actually, we, <laughs> we, uh, we read in this Augustine class this year, this book I mentioned, this, uh, on Christian doctrine. And it's interesting to read that book, because it's not so much on Christian doctrine, but it's about, it's about speaking Christian doctrine. And, and and understanding it. But one of the things he has in there is a chapter on the Trinity. And he said, this is the central part of what uh, I am talking about. That the end of human existence is life with the Trinity. Now, let me, let me run this, I, I don't have time to do a lot of it, but let me just run this through you. Um, um, in the beginning, and not in the beginning as the scripture says it, but in the, begin- in the beginning there is only God. All things that are not God are not necessary. God didn't have to do anything. Okay, you all know that. The first thing that God intended, intended if I can use those terms now, was that other beings, rational beings, be associated in his inner life as 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 invited to be to be uh, uh, a that is the end of every human being and their ultimate dignity now that end is higher than human nature could have by itself so that the cosmos exists in order that human beings can exist and human beings exist in order that they can decide what their what what they follow as they're, as they're in. I don't know whether you've seen that new book of uh, Father Spitzer, now, Father Spitzer is another brilliant guy. If you haven't read, the, have you ever read this book? This, um, it's called New Cosmological uh, Proofs for the Existence of God. Published by Erdmann about two years, it's a brilliant book. And uh, Spitzer uh, is, a, is a friend of mine, so I'm a big, I'm a big fan of his. And he's a, he's, a, he's a lot of things, he's a philosopher, a scientist, uh, 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 I don't know, everything. He, as far as I know, he knows everything. Like, like Professor Schrems, you know, he's like that. And, uh, uh, but uh, he says that, you know, if you look at the universe, the universe is now about 13.7 billion years old. And there are certain constants in the universe uh, that are so delicately uh, calculated that had they not been there as principles of the construction of the universe, whatever word you're going to use, it would not have been possible for there to be planets on which there is such a thing as rational human life. So it looks like, you heard the phrase perhaps, the the anthropic principle, it looks like that the universe itself is a, a starts at a given point from nothing, and it has a purpose which is ultimately that um, uh, the, the, the rational being achieves the end for which he was created, which is higher than his own uh, nature would allow it. And that's why we are adopted sons of, of, of God. And so that therefore when you say, well, what is, the, what, is the end? what is the drama that is going on? This is Augustine again. He says that in the two cities, the two cities are composed of those who ultimately reach their end and those who don't. And those who ultimately reach their end have to reach their end, A, by, by virtue of being invited to it and having grace, and secondly, accepting it in some sense. And those who don't create their own universe. And so that the question is that what we do in this world, like the Pope says in, um, in uh, Space Alve, he says, that the intelligibility of the modern world is precisely an effort to achieve all of the Christian ends in this world by means of human uh, technology and human um, um, uh, art. And so that therefore, he said, we've created in this world our own deathless efforts. So what's behind, like, like Professor Pellegrino is a, a famous professor there at Georgetown Medical School. He says, doctors today don't know what the end of human being is. Human being, and they're willing to make you live forever. And so these experiments by which we try to keep us alive, and so forth. you know what happened to you know what happened to Ted Williams, do you know what Ted Williams was the baseball player? Do you know what happened to him when he died? Well, when he died, his family got in a, con- got in a controversy about what to do with him, and uh, so they decided that there's this there's this uh, I forget what the name is, cytonic or something. Like that. There's there's this system. What's it called?
1: Cryogenics. Yeah. Cryogenics. This is where they can freeze his
0: body. And so they're going to freeze his body until such time as science figures out a way to cure Ted Williams' problem, and then they'll bring him back to life, and then they'll be, yeah. So it's an imitation, uh, resurrection of the body or immortality of the soul carried out in this world, which is what they're thinking of. And, and, and the Pope in his book points out that death, remember it says in the Old Testament that God never intended to have death. But at the same time, that death, once it comes into the world, becomes two things. It becomes a punishment, but it also becomes a release. And as the Pope says in, in Space Alva, he says that that uh, the idea of living on for 400, 500 years with, you know, who are your friends at 400 or 500 years? you know and Who's keeping you alive? Uh, he said, that's a hell on earth. He said, we have invented our own hells on earth. And so that therefore the and also, therefore, you, well, I don't want to go on this, but, but I, I do, but I, I don't have time. But, 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 but uh, the, uh, the, the point of it is that the end of the thing is something which is revealed to us as the, as the conclusion of our nature. And the conclusion of our nature is not in anything less than the restless heart, in less than that which we were created for, which is actually to, to live the life of the Trinity, which is what we're in the that was the purpose of creation, and that's the purpose of creation of each of us, and that's the basis of the you know this whole thing about abortion, all this kind of. Thing. That's the basis of every single child that ever was, that was ever existed. That's their end. Amazing. Uh.
1: I think uh, the Father Shaw, a renowned Jesuit priest, to end on the restless heart of Saint Augustine is a perfectly fitting closure <laughs> to a wonderful afternoon. Please join me in thanking.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.